What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school, you're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Even before I read your book, I always go and look at the author picture. Ah. <laughs> I laughed so hard that in the back of your author picture. And you saw Monkey Jesus? You have Echo Homo. yeah. I painted him myself, I'll say. And one of those, I like, you know, those places where you can drink wine and paint that's just like in a strip mall. There's one in my neighborhood in Brooklyn and I just got hammered and painted Monkey Jesus. And it's, but like, I think about Cecilia Jimenez. I think same. about the, the woman who just Google Eke Homo and see that there was this sort of, I feel like it was from the 30s. It was like this picture uh-huh. by Elias Martinez and this very lovely custodian of a church did a did a terrible a restoration uh, restoration. And it looks he looks like a, he looks like monkey Jesus now. But, but it's that's one of the, the most beautiful things that humans have ever done. <laughs> Just amazing. It's so good. So brilliant. Hello, I'm Minnie Driver, and welcome to Mini Questions. I've always loved Priest Questionnaire. It was originally an 18th century parlor game meant to reveal an individual's true nature. But with so many questions, there wasn't really an opportunity to expand on anything. So I took the format of Priest's Questionnaire and adapted what I think are seven of the most important questions you could ever ask someone. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life 
that has grown out of a personal disaster. The more people we ask, the more we begin to see what makes us similar and what makes us individual. I've gathered a group of really remarkable people who I'm honoured and humbled to have had a chance to engage with. My guest today is author and journalist Gia Tolentino. Gia wrote a New York Times bestselling book of essays called Trick Mirror, which is this sharp, critically dexterous examination of how we exist in this particular societal prism. She is a stark, deep, hilariously funny voice of her millennial generation. She grew up in a Houston megachurch that was so enormous they called it the Repentagon. I was fascinated as to how a person who has been relentlessly administered a certain set of moral and religious ideas breaks free from it. It turns out Gia is a world builder from her own questioning and imagination. She is so not precious about all the things she knows and is fantastically positive about all the different lives it seems she has lived. She is a vivid, poetic woman of vast interests, and it was an enormous pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to her. So we have been digging into the Britney Spears saga for the last like six months, and it's such, you know, I'm sure you saw the news about the the hearing. Yeah. Devastating. It was traumatic listening to her testimony. I had a baby during the pandemic, and it's it's really kind of viscerally reinforced, you know, the way she was treated. She had two children within 13 months. She was hounded everywhere she went. Like if I'd been dogged by 50 men shouting things at me to get a response and I was carrying a crying baby, I probably would have gotten in my car put the baby on my lap and driven away, you know? I would have hit the man with the umbrella, not the car, you know? (laughs) Yes, it happened to me. I mean, it happened repeatedly when Henry was tiny, but particularly at an airport when Henry was three months old. And it was a female paparazzi, which I think made it so much worse. And the things that they were saying to try and elicit a response and the flashes were making the baby jolt. Oh, I can't imagine. But I'm not saying that there is any real equivalency between myself and Britney Spears. But in that instance of knowing the insanity as a new mother feeling attacked and hunted. Absolutely. Like now I'm like, I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to have two, you know, she got pregnant two and a half months after giving birth, right? God. Yeah. I mean, I, the pandemic kind of afforded a surprisingly lovely postpartum experience that I wasn't expecting because, you know, it was a cocoon. But if there had been a camera on me for even one second, I would have looked like I was certifiable. Like it's just, you're unraveled for so long. But there is no latitude. There is no latitude given to women women right. for this moment after. It's extraordinary. I mean, I, I don't know why I'm surprised given that there's so much less latitude given to women in general for childbirth and mothering and taking mm-hmm. care of children and maternity leaves and paternity leaves. Yeah. It's shocking. And only if you've experienced that roller coaster of hormones that happens afterwards that you do need a gentle environment like you had Yeah. And even in a gentle environment, it's still hard. Yeah, totally. Because there's a calibration that you have to take care of this tiny creature and make sure nothing happens to it and feed it and take care of yourself. But also that your, your life is completely and utterly changed. Mm -hmm. But isn't it interesting like that women become these totems to further this sort of systemic abuse? 
I was watching an old episode of Sex in the City, which, you know, I happen to love. I just watched it for the first time. It's like eating cotton candy. Like I enjoy it. But I was watching an episode and a young girl who's saying that she's saving herself for marriage. And Sarah Jessica Parker's character says, you know, well, what do you consider sex? And the girl went, well, I didn't Lewinsky him or anything. Right. When I think about the abuse that a young woman like Monica Lewinsky withstood through what was a savage takedown and what should have been... A takedown of a different person. Of a different person. And yet there she was. We've literally had the scarlet letter placed on us in all these different forms for time immemorial. And our idea of equality is different from that of men. This is why. Mm -hmm. Because it is so oddly perverse because it is in every area. Even in something as sweet confection as Sex and the City, there is this blatant acknowledgement that this woman is apparently a whore or did something that, you know, she was only accountable for. Right. The extent to which Brittany, but I think kind of all women in the public eye inevitably end up experiencing sort of projection of cultural fears and desires that in Brittany's case, I think really composed the entire structure of her life. I mean, I've been thinking about it so much. I'm sure you have. I mean, I'm sure you have. Gosh. Oh, I could talk to you all day. (laughs) We get to talk for an hour. My first question is, when and where were you happiest? One thing that I have realized, I had a baby during the pandemic, which was a real sort of reintroduction to the controlling forces of sort of hormones and chemicals within one's body and psychological state. I write about it in an essay in my book where I talk about the feeling of ecstasy. One of the things that I feel luckiest about in this life is that temperamentally, I've been blessed with pretty sunny mental weather. I find a feeling of sort of ecstatic joy When I was a child, I felt it constantly, you know, just riding my bike with the sun at a certain angle or jumping into a pool or having a day with nothing to do but reading or seeing all my friends at the playground or ice skating in a circle in the rink, seeing my family at dinner. I was constantly full, like brimming with this sort of ecstatic happiness. I would feel it listening to music playing in someone's car. I felt it when I was out dancing. I felt when I was eating a really good bite of food, I found this feeling of just kind of an unfettered happiness and it's been interesting sort of seeing that in my baby who's now 10 months old. I, I'm i really just going right in there. I recently um, like stopped breastfeeding my child. And for about a month, you know, it completely com- changed the chemical composition of my brain. And the ability to access joy was completely removed from me. And I realized how much of that quality of having happiness, you know, right at hand, anytime the light was a certain way or a song would hit a certain note, you know, how arbitrary that was and how lucky I was to have that feel so, so common and so right under the texture of my everyday experience. But, you know, I would say like peak happiness, you know, for me as an, like, as an adult, like dancing at four in the morning with my friends, being caught in a rainstorm, like doing acid and looking at a tree, you know, petting, like walking with my dog by myself in the park in New York City, you know, that that's it for me. I so feel all those things. Yeah. Do you think that it's a frequency and that there are certain conditions or chemicals mm-hmm. that one can use to access that frequency of happiness. Because when I read that essay, Ecstasy in Trick Mirror, it was so brilliant because I remembered that, that when I was a kid, drugs would take me to that place. Yep. Now surfing takes me to that place. Yeah. Being with my son takes me to that place. Being out in the desert, meditating takes me to that place, uh-huh. which makes me think that that place is always there. It's mm-hmm. just how we find our way into it. Do you think that it's a frequency? I 
tend to act as if that is what it is and, and try to do the things that tune me into that frequency. I mean, I think, you know, the things that you're describing, surfing, being with your son, being in the middle of the desert and meditating, these are things that, you know, you get like a sort of like almost instinctively kind of a pre-verbal, almost just yeah. physically and existentially in tune, right? And there's like a light that comes from that sensation. And I think it is a frequency. And I think that, you know, that was, that historically has been my attraction to psychedelics or, you know, like you yeah. said, like drugs, you, you. Or music. I or mean, music. music like will take you to the same, because there are enough instances where music has taken me to the same place Absolutely. that the music plus the ecstasy would have taken me right. to. When I was pregnant and couldn't do drugs, I was like, man, I need to feel this. I, <laughs> when was, I, was I remember, you know, and I, I remember this one, you know, it was the middle of the pandemic. I remember one night driving through like kind of an empty New York city on the way to a doctor's appointment or something. And I was like, I need to feel it. And I turned on a song, like a particular song and waited to feel it. And, you know, I felt the flicker, you know, it's, but then, you know, I, I realized how, how lucky to have been able to access the frequency. I think that's when you said having a sunny, a sunny experience of mental health. Yeah. If it was so easy, like if everyone could just do it, everyone yes, would be doing it. E- exactly. Yeah. And I mean, isn't that what the what what antidepressants or what certain right. drugs are supposed to do, which is to help you potentially access or at least put you in a place where you are more more open to it. But we're so chemically bound. I mean, you say stopping breastfeeding. I had exactly the same experience. Really? But it's it because wild. We, because you've been flooded with oxytocin. Mm-hmm. You have been flooded with the happiest, most loving, divine, connected hormone mm-hmm. in existence. It, uh-huh. For me, it makes testosterone look like a kind of wet salami sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's so divine. It is so divinely experienced and feels like it is divinely given that when you take that away, no wonder you feel bereft. I'm glad to hear that you experiment with your ways into that. In fact, when I was talking about your book, Trick Mirror, with a couple of girlfriends who really experienced depression, they said that reading that essay on ecstasy, it gave such a vantage point of how there are maybe other ways in that they don't let themselves, they so identify themselves as depressed people that allowing that experiential stuff might help them find a different pathway in was super helpful. You know, you're talking about a frequency that you you have to kind of actively put yourself within the band for. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, they do there's so much stuff on sort of psychedelic therapy and sort of, you know, like and even like end, end of life. Um, yeah. therapy, you know, MDMA therapy for yeah, PTSD. Microdosing, yeah. Absolutely. And I, and I really do think that there is something, I mean, that was, it has served that purpose. You know, I'm, I'm wary of doing this too much or relying on it solely, but you know, there's something to be said for reminding yourself that this frequency is available to you, you know, and sometimes you might have to use an artificial means to access it and may, you wouldn't want to do that all the time, but it has served that purpose for me is reminding, like, I am capable of feeling just unbelievably fucking grateful to be alive, you know? That's amazing. That's amazing. (laughs) I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Okay, so what relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? This is such a good question, and it made me reconfront all of the answers that occurred in my mind. None of them were romantic. And this is something that I haven't yet figured out about myself, but I know, like, on the one hand, I... I have been so drawn to really traditional, almost stereotypical. I, you know, I've been in basically, I've been in monogamous relationships, almost unbroken since I was 16. You know, I'm, I'm drawn to just to like traditional notions of romantic love. And yet I find it incredibly uninteresting and I haven't really squared. I'm not that interested in love stories. You know, I'm not, I I, I can't, those like sweeping love stories in film and in, you know, in, in books and literature, I'm not, I'm not drawn to them. I don't find them interesting. You know, even in, in music, I find the, the drama of sort of attraction much more interesting than songs about love. And 
And so when I, and I don't know, I still haven't figured out what that is because in my actions, that's, it's, it's been a primary thing that I care about and structure my life around. But I think my experience of love is almost, it's so, and this is something that I feel lucky about it. It's so kind of familiar and natural that it's almost boring, which isn't to say that I find love in my daily life boring, but as a concept, I, anyway, so when I thought about this question, you know, the things I think that what I really, that what defines love for me are relationships structured around care. I think Mm. I thought about, like, this was another thing that I thought about having a baby in the pandemic was sort of like, this is what love is, the extraordinary lengths that people go to in circumstances around the world that are often phenomenally difficult in ways that I can, you know, hardly speak to or imagine what people do on an everyday basis to take care of the people in their family and the people that they love. I think that I think of that, that caretaking and devotion, that to me is what love is. And and on a really sort of everyday, and maybe that is why, maybe that does connect to the way I think of romantic love as this sort of like almost mundane thing is that love to me is like, I, I think about what defines love for me as a sort of everyday commitment or something like that. And not romantically and in terms of an everyday commitment to taking care of and watching out for and safeguarding, you know, the well-being of a parent, a child, a partner, a friend, right? Hopefully, you know, often strangers too. I think I think of just this everyday, these everyday actions. When I was young, I remember my first, this is so funny, I just remembered this. When I was maybe in elementary school, one morning I woke up sobbing because I'd had this dream about a bicycle, a bicycle in an empty playground that nobody had, like, that was just there and nobody had picked it up. Nobody had claimed it. And I woke up sobbing, like thinking like someone has to take care of this bicycle. And I think, and and that to me was one of the first, I think that was an early understanding of what love is. And I think I had another sort of shocking realization of, of that. I remember, you know, back to the breastfeeding thing, <laughs> but you know, I mean, it is kind of, a, I it's remember huge. it's huge. And I, and I think that's really the experience that you know, people say like motherhood will change you or whatever. And I think really it was the sort of hormonal tsunami that came yeah. from breastfeeding that made me understand. I, I remember like day three back from the hospital when my milk came in, I could feel in my body just this, this existential desire to, to take care and like the, the responsibility and the desire and the sweetness and the like monstrosity of needing and wanting to to take care of somebody for as long as they live, basically. Yeah, that's such a beautiful, that is such a beautiful way of putting it. It is overwhelming, which love is. Right. But also every day, right? It's, it's every it's, single day, which dovetails into also the letting, I've talked about this a bit, but what no one ever seemed to talk about with motherhood is that the very act of giving birth is the thing that you will have to do most with your child, which is to let go mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. And it is this, this constant process how do you want to continue to give something everything when you also have to continually be letting them go in order to have the experience that they came here to have, which it's... Do you it's, have any it, advice for me? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I do. I do. Oh my God. What would my advice be? Keep it in your heart that, but I, I think you already 
do just from having read your book, but that notion that nothing is guaranteed yes. and that every single moment is leading up to this moment where you really, you really do completely let them go to be free, but you must always underwrite that. So it's yeah. kind of being very, being very strict with yourself about what your job as custodian is mm -hmm. and how much they are serving your needs and insecurities as opposed uh -huh. to you dealing with that shit and yep. then really underwriting the person that they will, are becoming. So it's just paying attention to who they are. Mm -hmm. I really have tried not to shove my sweet Henry into any box. And as a result, very young, he has been self-determining. Mm -hmm. And that's not, you know, oh, the kid, oh, you know, I'm just going to let my kid fling his poo across the room because yeah. know, I want him to be free to be him. It, it's not that. It's about really, really feeling and seeing where their interest lies and encouraging that mm -hmm. and not hammering the stuff that we think they should learn because mm -hmm. they're going to learn that if you're if you're kind and loving and you keep letting them go, because no one tells you to teach yourself to let your child go, but it, it's really the number one thing as a, as a mother that I've learned. It's hard, but it's the best possible thing because I think it's what brings them, it's what will always bring them back. Yeah. It will always yeah. keep them connected to you is knowing that they are free to fly and they'll like homing pigeons. I'll just they'll come home. I'm going to hang on to this and remember it. And I, and I think for me, it, there was something that I felt thankful for in the way that pregnancy and childbirth was in itself sort of physically instructive, how it physically reinforced the sort of existential and practical thing that you would have to do later, right? That you could never, like you, you had to understand that nothing was ever guaranteed, that nothing yeah. was ever certain. And yeah, I, I found that to be like a useful existential lesson about the world. And yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it really is. What person, place or experience most altered your life? I grew up in an extremely conservative religious community in Texas, going mostly on scholarship to a, you know, very, very like ultra Christian school attached to one of the biggest megachurches in the country. And I have realized increasingly I wouldn't say that I'm a straightforward product of that environment, but it was the entirety of my world from age four to 16, let's say. And without that experience, I think I would be significantly different. I lost religion. I would say maybe high school, you know, my politics veered very far left as soon as I got to college. I mean, you know, I grew up, I never met a liberal person. I never met a feminist. I never met anyone that was pro-choice. It was very, very kind of a homogenous in every way. It was a like 99% white, very rich environment. But I think what that did to me was at a fundamental level, and I think this has served me in writing and in thinking, I think it, it made me understand the default state of life as one in which nobody would necessarily agree with you. And that was okay. Your opinion did not have to be validated by the people around you. It gave me a sort of quasi lonely, but like a true sort of independence within my own brain. It also gave me, I think, an understanding of political and sort of cultural views that I think I technically find really abhorrent. But growing up with only people who believed these things made me understand how a view that I find abhorrent might manifest on the intimate everyday level to somebody who holds it. 
And I think that a lot of my progressive politics came from growing up in the church and not understanding why, you know, this Bible that I was having to read every single day of my life for years, it seemed to me to be this very clearly kind of like socialist and progressive thing that was interpreted in ways that were the opposite, sort of economic policies that were harsh and individualistic. And my kind of confusion and anger about all of that ended up shaping my politics into what they are now. And then abidingly, the last thing, I'm left with the sort of vestigial, almost desire for devotion. I crave and respect and kind of venerate devotion. And that might have something to do with my answer about love. And I think that that came from the church. How extraordinary to be in an environment of, and I hope it's not offensive to say indoctrination. No, please. I got, I got a ring that said I wasn't going to have sex when I was like seven, you know? Wow. But within that environment, you can read the Bible and actually see the beautiful, socialist, loving, inclusive text yeah. that is an interpretation of it, whilst also being hammered with the idea that Jesus was white and that it is an individualistic world that we're living in or under God. Right. And like gay people should not, you know, blah, blah. Yeah. The gay people shouldn't exist. And blah, blah. Right. How on earth did you, how did you listen to your own voice when you have this mega voice slamming you? How did you do it? Well, I think that, you know, the process that you're describing is no different from what we were talking about before we started recording. It's like maybe what every woman does to get themselves out of the thumb of sort of patriarchal expectation, right? Like both probably done our own individual, like deprogramming out of things that were kind of unequivocally grafted onto us at a younger age. You know, and I've really never thought about this except for the way that you just asked the question. I am troubled by how well I sort of adapted to fit in and like still wanted to be cool and fit in with this environment that I also openly hated, but still, you know, was a teenager. But I think, you know, there were certain things. I was not white. My family was not wealthy like those other families. There was already a difference. There was already some sort of separation that maybe made room for a lot of sort of private individual questioning. I also had a couple of close friends that, you know, we had preliminary versions of these conversations, not knowing what we were talking about, but, you know, there was a strong desire to get out or to reach for something else than what we've been given. And a few of my friends, we we kind of reached for these things kind of blindly. And I think that actually the real way though, is, is just writing. I think as an elementary schooler, even I was just this copious, copious journaler. Hmm. And when I was going back, I was reading my old diaries to sort of fact check my book. And I had to also remember that the transition away from these things, it feels significant, but it was gradual. It maybe, you know, started in seventh grade and reached a sort of working synthesis, maybe at the end of college or something. You know, I remember getting to college and a girl in one of my classes introduced herself as a feminist. And I was like, ugh, like, you know, performative much, you know, like I was sort of like, ugh, that's so like 80s or, you know, I don't even know what I thought, but there was a period of time where I was trying to find a way to hold on to both. And I think that period lasted for six or seven years. It was a steady movement, but there was a long time where I was trying to reconcile the environment that I grew up in with the things that I kind of instinctively felt were true. Mm. And in going back and reading my journals, I had to remember it, it took a long time. And I think the way I moved was just constantly writing out my anxiety, <laughs> writing out, you know, like there's something strange about this. And then six months later, I would say, you know, I think what it is, is this. And then six months later, I would realize, you know, and it was just slowly, slowly, slowly. I think it's really interesting. And again, I'm not drawing any equivalency between me and you, but I 
what I do recognize is in the face of being told something that is apparently empirical, mm-hmm. like the stuff that you were being told, the stuff that I was being told was that you are going to be unemployed and you'll be lucky if you do some sort of corporate videos telling people where the exits are and, you know, mm-hmm. developing the idea of an independent thought within a structure that feels impermeable. I think it's really interesting. And I think that w- women have to do it an enormous amount. Right. We're always having to get out of structures that have been previously created. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> My heart is bursting. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. What quality do you like least about yourself? I have a long-held theory that the best And the worst qualities about ourselves are always deeply related. For me, I think one of the best qualities of myself is that I can be very carefree. I think I am very easygoing. But my least favorite quality is that I can be incredibly careless on every level. Careless to the level of, 
you know, losing my phone, wallet, keys within the span of 30 seconds to, to I think, emotional carelessness, like deep emotional carelessness mm. to deciding. I think that when I choose to care about something, it is like a true commitment, but I think it is very easy for my brain to compartmentalize and say, like, I do not need to recognize this as a concern. A little too easy for me to turn off from. And, and, you know, this is something that has served me well on the other end of the spectrum where I think I'm really good at not worrying about certain things that I can't control, sort of accepting uncertainty and, you know, whatever. But the, the flip side to it is everything that I've ever regretted in my life, every real mistake I've ever made, I think stems from a quality of, of carelessness. It's so interesting that we don't think of it like that as, as the thing that we like best about ourselves and the thing that we like least really being so closely aligned. There's a Rizzler paper, yeah, like thin bit between carefree and careless. Mm-hmm. And That's there's, you know, and it's the opposite. It's sort of like my my boyfriend, my partner, who like his like his best quality. It's almost the opposite. You know how when you're in a relationship, you have the same fight over and over. Yeah. You know, and it's just always, and like ours is, is the same, you know, for 12 years, it's been me saying like, why do you care so much about this dumb thing? And he's like, Gia, why don't you don't care, you care. Enough <laughs> about this a really important thing, you know? <laughs> and his, and his quality of like, luckily they, it mirrors like his, I think his best quality is that he is abundantly conscientious and detail oriented and, and caring, you know, and mm-hmm. the, the, the flip side is that we could be like pedantic or over, you know, critical or something, you know, but it's, but they're entirely the same. It's the same quality in many ways. That's so funny. I find I've grown because I have an extraordinarily detailed orientated boyfriend as well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I realize it sets me off sometimes because I wish I were like that. Yeah. So really there's a kind of aspirational envy. Yeah. <laughs> Has it made you any more detail oriented being with him? Do you know what? It's made me appreciate how shit I am at that. Yeah. But See, also <laughs> like, I think that, but if it's a scale only, only I would notice that I'm, I, the needle has actually flicked further yeah. forward into being more, but nobody else would notice that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but, but the other great quality yeah. is, is patience. He has, mm-hmm. he has limitless patience with, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel most of the time just like a really cumbersome Luddite that he carries around with him. Like, you know, this is my girlfriend. She's only <laughs> just realized that they've invented the wheel uh-huh. and, and, but he's so patient without being patronizing. And I think that's what makes him sort of almost superhuman. Mm-hmm. But there is a pedantry. And sometimes I'm like, you don't have to look at all the little bits. Just enjoy the whole. We don't right. have to dissect it into all of these little pieces. But, but then probably both of our lives are enriched by 100%. our partner's like, attentive detail to the whole. I'm, I'm pretty sure that I, would, I wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning if I didn't. <laughs> I would live in a nest of books and clothes on the floor. Like. <laughs> 100%. Everything would be getting shut off and it'd be like, I wish there was some way to pay these bills yeah. <laughs> some automated so way. Much think of a way. Yeah. <laughs> someone help <laughs> what question would you most like answered I think it would be like what is the most useful possible way I could spend my life you know because you struggle with this in a sort of utilitarian sense I often think like what am I doing like, shouldn't I just be chained to a tree in an old growth forest? Like, shouldn't I be like at the Texas-Mexico border flinging myself in front of, you know, like an ice facility? You know, you like you wonder, like, I never expected that I would be able to write for a living. I never expected that I would have the 
privilege. You know, so few people in the world get to do something that's creatively fulfilling. And get paid to do it. And get paid to do it. And I feel so phenomenally lucky to be able to do it. And then sometimes I'm like, you know, is this just sitting at my computer and writing an art? I think that serves like an objective function and it's important. But, you know, I mean, sometimes you just wonder, like, should I be doing something? You know, should I, should I go to law school? And, you know, this is very interesting. This is very interesting because you wrote something. I don't know where I read it, but I wrote it down here. In everything that I write, I do hope to make things clearer for the people who read it. Sure. Yeah. So I think that that is unbelievably useful and amazing. To be able to articulate is a gift. God knows it's why we read. But I would also like to say it's really interesting because even at a very young age, you clearly have been worried about how do you save all the bicycles? Right. (laughs) It's quite interesting that like that's been a concern of yours for, it sounds like your whole life is like, how do I save all the stuff? It's like you're, you're doing it. You're doing it through the medium of writing. You're doing it through mothering. And like, maybe you will chain yourself to an old growth tree. I know, maybe I will. Maybe you will at some point do that. But I know what you mean about, is there more that I should be doing? Yeah, you know, and and there'll never be an objective answer. I think what I do know is that, you know, when you have a friend that they ask, like, am I a really bad person? You know, am I? And, And it's like, you have to remind them that the fact that they're always asking themselves this question is itself a guard against the thing that they're worried about. I have a feeling that this anxiety that's always in the back of my mind that like, could I be using my time in a better way? Could I be giving my impulses more to the collective other than the individual? Like, I think that it is a kind of stick that I need to have. I try to keep that stick going in a way that is productive rather than sort of like uselessly self-flagellating. Yeah, exactly. It's such a great answer to that question. Like, could somebody tell me the exact thing that would be the most useful, best use of my life here. Just someone tell me, could someone run the math? (laughs) But again, I mean, I think you just sort of answered it though as well in saying, if you're asking that question, it means that you're paying attention to what you are doing, which means you're most likely holding that thought of, is this the best use of my time? I mean, Mm -hmm. God knows I do enough stuff where I go, what am I doing? It is usually just doing something incredibly mundane. And I'm like, what am I doing? I feel like I should be doing something 10 times more productive, but it's not always possible. Right. So it's sort of like do it when you can, right? You know, I get this feeling when I'm like laying in bed and needing to wind down and I'm just reading news that I know I'm going to forget and, you know, instantly as soon as I read it. And it's like, you know what? Whatever. <laughs> Sometimes the brain <laughs> simply must eat some garbage. and then... Yeah, exactly. I wonder if some of the people who are chained to the old growth trees, I wonder if they think, is there something more that I could be doing? Because there's no stasis in any of this. There's no definitive answer. There's no there there. Yeah. That even the person who is definitively doing what we would objectively look at and go, that person is changing the world. Right. They can't be doing it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. They themselves must question, you know, is there more Lord? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so in your life, can you tell me about something that has grown out of a personal disaster? I'll say I feel, you know, another 
kind of luck that I've had in my life. You know, I've been spared a lot of personal grief that I think a lot of people have had to go through. I've, I have not like had a, a very close family member die. Anyway, this is just a way of saying I've been spared a lot of disasters. But I think that the closest thing to this question, when I was out of college, I graduated right into the middle of the 2008 recession. I was like, you know, like you were saying earlier, I was like, I'll, I'll never be employed. I'll never do. I'll never be able to make anything of myself. I didn't know what to do. And I joined the Peace Corps with all of this sort of idealism and grand plans to, you know, do good. And, you know, probably, you know, these ultimately imperialistic desires to save somebody or something, right? Maybe it's back to the bicycle thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and that's an uncomfortable and, you know, in many ways, sort of dehumanizing way to think of, of, other, of other humans who are your equals, right? But in terms of your feeling from a very young age that there was service that needed to be addressed. Yeah. And then, so, you know, and I, this was one of the most important periods of my life. I went to Kyrgyzstan and Central Asia and it was, it was a roller coaster of an experience. We were evacuated to a military base twice. There was essentially a genocide month two. There was a government coup day seven. I wanted the challenge of it. And I thought, you know, sort of hubristically that, you know, you come out of this challenge stronger and you do all of these things. And it was a sort of singularly defining lesson that, your intentions and your outcomes, there's often a massive sort of unbridgeable gap that you can come in trying so hard to do something and then realize you were all wrong. And, you know, you can come in feeling like you have so much to give and then ultimately understand that you are still taking somehow. Hmm. And I ultimately left early. I left after 13 months and I pride myself on commitment. That was a story that I told myself about myself that, you know, I say I'm going to do something and I'm going to do it. And I quit and I bailed and I came back feeling, you know, useless and, and terrible. And like, I would never be able to do anything good in my life and feeling like I don't understand anything. And I came back sort of horrified at American capitalism, you know, because I was in the middle of nowhere, you know, no internet, you know, no running water. And I came back, I would go into grocery stores and I would burst into tears at I craved and I feared the fact that I could just walk in anywhere and just all of these products had been flown around the world for my comfort and my whims. And, you know, and I felt just so confused and like, I knew absolutely nothing. And I think as time went on, I realized that that was actually an okay way to feel, (laughs) you know, that was actually maybe the grounds from which I would begin to try to understand things is with the sort of simultaneous reaction of dread of the world as it is, but a desire to be in it. Hmm. You know, people often say they're humbled when they actually mean like, I'm, I'm very honored to announce, you know, and that was an experience of being humbled as being like truly broken down. Hmm. For a while, I thought I need to get myself out of this state to get back to normal. And I think slowly I started to understand I need to remember part of this state and retain some aspect of this humility, you know, like function a little better, but retain some of the sense that I don't know anything and that that's okay. And that I can operate from this standpoint of humility, true humility from here going out. Wow. It's quite a thing to bring that back with you and then to synthesize that into your everyday life. But amazing that you had that experience. I feel really lucky. And it was, again, you know, you you go there expecting to give. I left feeling like I took. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that too was a lesson, you know, that it would have to be a steady and constantly reevaluated commitment if I did want to give more than I took in this world. I think that's a really, really good way of looking at any kind of service is really seeing how much you're actually taking. Yeah. 
God, Gia, it's just so lovely to talk to you. I could really talk to you forever and ever. It is such an honor to meet you. And thank you for, yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you for telling me that about mothering. I'm going to remember it for always, I think. (laughs) Yeah, love with loose hands. That's what someone said. Anyway, good luck with your gorgeous baby bird. (laughs) Thank you. Gia's book, Trick Mirror, is out now. And there is an extraordinarily good piece of investigative journalism she co-wrote with Ronan Farrow in the July 3rd edition of The New Yorker, entitled Britney Spears' Conservatorship Nightmare. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoie. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Minnie Driver. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Way basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Way with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Rowe, Roland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts.